I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel 15 will be our text this Lord's Day, or at least the first uh, 12 verses. Um, we're going to be looking at the beginning part of 2 Samuel 15, and then we're going to take a, a break in our study of 2 Samuel uh, for the Advent season, and we'll pick back up in 2 Samuel in January. And so if you've wondered how much longer, Lord, you get a break until January, and then we're right back at it in this long, depressing book where we learn to stop doing the wrong thing, and we learn the consequence of sin. We see over and over and over again this, this drawn-out process where David sinned, and we do see a repentant David in the Psalms, but we don't really know exactly when that true, genuine repentance took place. And, and during this process where we're seeing the ripple effects of David's sin, we see how it affects everyone around him. And today we continue to see how it affects his son Absalom, and we see Absalom's uh, conspiracy now to, to overthrow his son. And this, this really all goes back to what the Lord said to David through Nathan, that because of his sin uh, with Bathsheba and against Uriah, that the sword would not depart from his house. And we see that in full swing, literally, uh, as we see what's taking place now with Absalom. So we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Second Samuel 15. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this passage. And this is what the word of God says. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man would come near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay a vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Well, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went into their, in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, who was from Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. 
you would pray with me. Father, we do pray that as we consider your word today, as we see the the deceiving ways of Absalom, we pray that you might help us to be discerning, to recognize these ways in others, and primarily to recognize them in ourselves, that we might repent and walk in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Amen. Some of you may have seen an article recently. The Better Business Bureau released their naughty list of the top 12 scams of Christmas. This is the time of year of giving. It's also the time of year when people try to take advantage of us. And they do that in more and more ways. Among their list were alerts about compromised accounts. This happens when someone contacts you via email or the mail or a phone call and says that uh, your password's been compromised to such and such account. They get personal information from you and then, of course, they steal your money. They also note that we need to watch out for fake charities. As much as uh, 40% of all donations that go to genuine charities happen the last few weeks of the year. And so scammers are very active this time of year. They'll come up with fake websites, fake uh, charities that look just like genuine ones, all in a way to steal our money. And then one I've already received, perhaps you have as well, is an email about fake shipping notifications, where you get an email, it looks like it's from FedEx or UPS or the post office, saying that you know, you've got this shipment, they really want to get it to you, they just need more personal information. And of course, they use that so that they can steal your money. There's many different methods for these scams, but they all have the same motive. They want to take something that's not theirs. They want to take something from me and you that that doesn't belong to them. They want to steal from us. As we come to 2 Samuel 15, we don't find email scams and we don't find fake shipping notifications, but we do find someone who wants to take something that's not theirs. Absalom wants to take the kingdom from his father. He, He wants to steal it. And in this way, he is very much following in his father's footsteps. As we've seen David's sin play out in the lives of his sons, we continue to see it here. If you think about what David did, he he saw Bathsheba. Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, and he wanted to take her from Uriah. And he stole her. And now we see his sin in the life of his son Absalom, who sees the kingdom that's not his, and who wants that kingdom, and who intends to steal it. And so as we begin our study of 2 Samuel 15, we know that there are multiple things that take place here, steps that Absalom takes in order to steal his father's kingdom. And so we're going to walk through these today, and as we do, prayerfully see how we can apply what we see here to our lives today. Beginning with the first step he takes, point one, Absalom pretends to be a king. He pretends to be a king. Now, we see Absalom's motives becoming more clear now when we were looking at the end of chapter 14 and looking at this supposed reconciliation between David and Absalom. We left off with Absalom coming before King David, King David kissing his son, the the appearance that all was well. But as I mentioned last Lord's Day, this wasn't genuine. 
all certainly was not well. And we see how that plays out now. And it starts with this appearance that Absalom takes off. This, this show of royalty. We read in the first verse that Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now there was no practical purpose for this at all. This was entirely for show. This was to give the appearance of royalty, the appearance of a king. You might recall that back when the people had cried out early in 1 Samuel for a king, that Samuel gave them a warning from the Lord about what would happen if they were to have a king. That they wanted to be like all the nations around them. God warned them that this was a bad idea. He told them exactly what would take place. And he said this to them in 1 Samuel 8.11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Fast forward now to 2 Samuel 15 and what do we see? We see Absalom who wants to be the king and in this show of royalty he's doing the exact thing that the Lord warned the people would take place. He's, he's taking their sons and he's having them run before his chariots. He's pretending to be the king. He is scheming to have the people recognize him as the king. And by the end of this passage, we'll see how his scheme is working itself out. He has the appearance of a king. You may remember from our study last week that it was noted in chapter 14 that the appearance of Absalom, what he looked like, Verse 25 said, And now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. Now, this description of Absalom may sound a bit familiar to us because in our study of First and Second Samuel there was another person who was noted for their appearance. And it happened back in 1 Samuel chapter 9 when the people were crying out for a king. And do you remember when Saul was chosen to be the king, what was said about him? He was speaking of Saul's father. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You see, Saul impressed the people with his appearance. He looked the part of a king. And now we see something similar being said about Absalom. He, he impresses others with his appearance. He, he looks the part of the king. And so he gets the chariot and he gets the horses. And you can just kind of picture this scene in Jerusalem as people are going about their day-to-day -day life. That down the road would come these chariots and horses and Absalom. And people say, who is that? that that's Absalom. Uh, looks like the king. He had the appearance of royalty. But as we've learned in our study of God's Word, looks and appearance can be deceiving. And in God's economy, it's not the outward appearance that's as significant as the heart of a man or woman. And we'll see how significant that is about Absalom. God has made this clear already in First and Second Samuel. You may recall when Israel cried out for a king and God gave them a king in Saul and how everything went wrong and Saul disobeyed God and God took his anointing from Saul that then the Lord chose David to be king. And he sent Samuel to Jesse to pick from his sons 
the next king. And as he looked at, Sam, at Jesse's sons, he noted their appearance. He noted the ones that looked like a king. You remember, the Lord said to him in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, speaking of Jesse's other sons. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is important for us to be reminded of. As we come now to Absalom, as we come to this appearance he has, we need to remember what God has already taught us. That God doesn't see as man sees. That that we tend to look at the external. God looks at the heart. And so I think a, a practical application for us from this is that very thing. We, we need to be careful about our constant judgments based on appearance. Uh, about even in our own lives, our, our concern about focusing on the eternal. About presenting ourselves in a certain way. Of trying to look a certain way and impress others in the way that we look by just focusing on the external. We need to remember that Man looks at that. But the Lord looks at the heart. And as we consider this passage this morning, we need to consider our own hearts. And recognize that right now in this moment, that while we can't see it, God sees our heart. And the question for you and I this morning is, what does God see when He sees our heart? What does He see in you? What does He see in me this morning? That does He see a heart of repentance? Does he see a heart of faith? Does he see a heart of compassion, mercy, forgiveness? Or does he see something else? Does he see a heart of pride, of materialism, of covetousness, of an unforgiving spirit? What does the Lord see when he looks at your heart and mine? We see here in this passage that Absalom is focused on the external. The people even are focused on the external. Absalom is pretending to be a king, but he's no king. He'll manage to fool a lot of people, but he can't fool God. And neither can I, and neither can you. How does God see us this morning? That's the first thing for us to consider as we see Absalom here Pretending to be something he's not. Point two, we see that Absalom then poses as a judge. So in his effort to be the king, he, he pretends to be a king, the appearance of a king. And then point two, he, he poses as a judge. And so we read here that he would go to the city gate. Now the city gate was significant because the city gate was where people would come for a number of things. And one of them uh, was when they had a dispute, when they had a claim, when they wanted a judgment given on their way to see the king for the judgment. A lot of these things were handled at the gate of the city. And so Absalom strategically would place himself there at the city gate. And when someone would start approaching the gate, he would ask where they were from. And when they would say where they were from, he would say, Oh, the king hasn't appointed anyone to hear your problem. Oh, you're from such and such a place. Well, there, there, there's nobody who's here to offer you judgment. Now, this was a lie. Well, we don't know the details about what King David had appointed and had not appointed, but we've already seen leading up to now how people were able to come to David with their claims. 
even when they were being deceptive in that process, there was an opportunity for them to be heard and for him to offer judgment. But here we see Absalom short-circuiting that process. And in doing so, he's wanting to win the affections of the people because he's wanting the people to see him as the judge, to see him as the king. And notice how he does that. Anyone who came to him with anything, verse 3, he would say, see your claims are good and right. And so the context here would be this. Someone would come before him perhaps with a dispute about their neighbor and they would put their dispute before Absalom. He would say, you're in the right here. You're right. I agree with you. And then that person would go about their business and then perhaps that neighbor would then come and the neighbor would say, well, here's my side of it. Here's my side of the dispute. And then Absalom would say to him, well, you're right also. I agree with you. That the context here is that he just told people what they wanted to hear. He told everyone that they were right. And in doing that, he didn't give anyone justice. He just told them what they wanted to hear. A number of years ago, and I just so you know, this is probably over 20 years ago, I had a little traffic violation that I had to deal with. Way back when, would not happen now. But 20 years ago, it did. I almost hit a state trooper. And so, when you almost hit a state trooper, you have to go to court. And so, that's just pretty much a given. And so, I went to court that day to, to plead my case. And I was guilty and I was wrong and I wasn't paying attention. And so, I was going to say all of that and expected to get a fine and maybe traffic school. But the way the setup was that day... I went before a fairly new judge. He was a young judge. His father had been a judge in our community for a long time. His father was retiring. He had just won uh, a race, and now he was a judge. And so this young judge was there. And and for whatever reason, my case was, was later, and I just sat there for a few hours and watched all these other cases go before this judge. Well, I noticed something. Every person that went before this judge, nobody ever got found guilty. And so one young man, I remember, went before him, and his, uh, his ticket was for public intoxication. And so the judge said, well, tell me what happened. And he told him what happened. He told him I was at this party and how he was drunk at this party, and the police came. And the judge starts saying things like, well, that sounds like a great party. Wow, it sounds like y'all had a really good time. Now, you're not going to do that again, are you? And the guy's like, well, no, no I won't do it again. He was lying. I'm sure he was going to. But, but the judge said, okay, not guilty. Went to the next person. Somebody comes before him, and, I mean, had a huge speeding ticket, like this crazy speeding ticket. And he said, what were you, well, I was in a hurry to get to such, so where are you going to do it again? No, I'm not going to, okay, not up. Every single person. So by the time I get up there, I'm pretty optimistic that even though I almost hit a state trooper, that maybe I'm going to get out of this. And sure enough, he asked me what happened. I told him I was distracted. I told him what happened. He said, where are you going to do it again? No, I'm not going to do it again. Not guilty. Now, I left the courtroom that day with kind of mixed emotions. On one hand, I was really thankful I didn't have to pay a fine and I didn't have to go to Travis school. But something felt unsettled about that. Something felt wrong about that. Because at least in that context, in that day, when I was there, it seemed that that judge just told everyone what they wanted to hear. And he told everybody they were right. And there was no justice. Now, admittedly, I was thankful in that moment there wasn't justice for me. But all of us want justice for everybody else, don't we? And we really need to want it for ourselves. God's put that in our heart. And what we see here from Absalom 
is there's a complete disregard that there's no justice here. He's just telling the people what they wanted to hear. And in doing this, he's plotting against the king. Verse 3, he says, there's no one designated by the king to hear you. Verse 4, oh, that I were the judge in the land. He, he is posing to be a judge, but he has no interest in justice. He just wants to woo the people. And it seems he does. Verse 6, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And we need to note here that this phrase, he stole their hearts, isn't exactly what we might think it to be. We, we might think of that as a, as a grandparent speaking of their new grandchild endears to them, saying, oh, they've just stolen my heart. A term of endearment, a term of affection. No, what's happening here in the Hebrew carries more the meaning that, that Absalom, he tricked them. That he literally stole from them. That, that he stole from them by deceiving them. And the Hebrew, the word for heart, really points more to the mind. It's saying that he tricked their minds. He, he manipulated their minds. He deceived their minds into turning their allegiance to him. He manipulated them to following him by telling them what they wanted to hear. So what might we apply from this? Well, be careful. Be careful about following people and listening to people who just tell you what you want to hear. Preachers and politicians do this all the time. They, we, we know how to tickle your ears. We know what you want to hear. If my desire this morning was to get 50 amens, I could get 50 amens. Amen? See, that's how you do it. You can manipulate people. We can be manipulated so easily. And the way that happens, sadly, very often in our lives today, as preachers, politicians, leaders, whoever it might be, they know how to scratch what itches. That they know how to push the right buttons. And we flock to follow them. Be careful. Be warned. It's easy to look at these people at the city gate and say, well, how couldn't they notice that Absalom's just telling them what they want to hear? Incidentally, he did that for four years. <laughs> And yet, look at the church today. Look at how many of us today, we seem to flock to those who just tell us what we want to hear. And it's, it's certainly dangerous in politics, but it, it is devastating when we do that in the church. And friends, we, we are warned specifically about this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions who will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so the instruction we're given then in 2 Timothy is this. Be sober-minded. Be aware. Be warned. You are to judge everything that is said from this pulpit through the lens of the Word of God, not the lens of your emotions and the lens of your itching ears. 
I'm not here to scratch those ears. And if that becomes what I do, then you need to remove me and get someone else because the pastor should proclaim the Word of God. Whether that's what we want to hear or not. Whether that lines up with our heart's desires or not. And here we see what happens when we're not sober-minded, when we're not mindful of those things. The people, their, their hearts, their minds are, are wooed towards Absalom because he tells them what they want to hear. He poses as a judge. He pretends to be a king. And then point three, he presents himself as religious. He presents himself as religious. And so, four years go by, and he goes to King David, and he asks for David's blessing. Now again, we, we don't know a lot about what's been going on with David for these four years, but the picture we're getting more and more of David is one of passivity. I mean, certainly it would have come to David's attention that for the last four years, Absalom had been trying to settle disputes at the city gate. Therefore, those disputes weren't making their way into his court. And it seems that he really doesn't do anything about it. And then four years later, as the appearance is there that Absalom's up to something, Absalom comes to him and says, hey, I want to go to Hebron, and I'm just going there to worship God, and I just want to get your blessing to do that. And David says, go in peace. And he doesn't confront him. He doesn't call into question his motives. He, he just tells him to go in peace. And what is it that Absalom says he wants to do? Well, well he's vowed a vow. And he says to him that back when he was in Hebron, that he had made a vow to God, and that vow was if he ever got to go back to Jerusalem, that he would come there and he would offer worship to God. Now, Hebron was significant for a number of reasons, and it really plays into what Absalom's scheme is here because one, it's 20 miles away from Jerusalem. It's kind of outside of the king's sight. He can scheme there against the king. It was the city of Absalom's birth. It was the city he was from. You may remember it was the, the first royal city of David before he moved to Jerusalem. So it's no coincidence that Absalom wants to go to Hebron in order to enact his plan and his scheme to take the kingdom from David. And he does it under the banner of religion. He does it under the banner of offering worship to God. But what we see is that he is simply pretending to be religious. In fact, as you study through the remainder of 2 Samuel and you go back and read what we've covered before this, you don't ever find Absalom outside of this talk about worshiping God that this is the first and last time he ever mentions anything like this. You don't really find Absalom saying much about the Lord moving forward. And so it seems the indication would be that his desire wasn't really to go worship. His desire was to go enact his plan to overthrow the kingdom. He, he used his religious activity. He used the appearance of religion in order to enact his plan. He was presenting himself as religious, but he had no genuine religion. And unfortunately, he wouldn't be the last politician to present himself or herself as religious in order to get their way. Again, I think there's a warning for us because we see this all the time. Leaders, politicians, friends, family members, at times they, they can present themselves as spiritual, as religious, they can invoke the Lord's name, really just in a desire to get their way and further their agenda. Be careful about following such people. 
and again, not to harp on politics, but the, the first illustration that came to my mind is how often we see politicians do this, use the banner of religion in order to woo us. A number of years ago, there was a candidate running for president of the United States, and when we lived in Bowling Green, this candidate was coming through Bowling Green for a campaign stop, and everybody knew about it. It was very public, and it became very public very soon that they were going to be there uh, over a Sunday and that they were going to attend a church in town. They didn't attend the church that I was at. They attended a church of a friend of mine, and they, they went to that church. There were, there were pictures of them on their way into church, on their way out of church with their entourage. It, it had the appearance that they were very religious. And so I asked my friend afterwards, I was like, well, how, how was that? I mean, you had somebody in your church that, that you know, we didn't know if they were going to win or lose at that time, that this could be the president of the United States. How was it to have them in your church? I remember my friend said, it was distracting. <laughs> that they sat on the front row their entourage sat around them on the first couple rows. And during the entire worship service, they were on their laptops, on their phones, making phone calls. It was distracting. That they had no interest, it would seem, in being there for worship. That they just wanted the appearance of religion. They, they wanted the photo op on the way in and out. Friends, let's be careful that we don't fall for that. That just because someone holds up a Bible for a photo op doesn't mean they've hidden God's Word in their hearts. That just because they have a picture of them coming in and out of a church doesn't mean that their heart's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they can speak about religion, but do they have the fruit of repentance in their life? What we see here, what we're reminded of here in Absalom is one who seemed to have the appearance of religion as he goes before King David. He has the appearance that he's going to worship, but he's up to something completely different. And it's not just people out there we need to be concerned about. We need to ask that question of ourselves as well. Why are you here this morning? Why are you in this worship service? Are you and I here because our lives have been transformed by the gospel? We desire to come and worship our one true, sovereign, holy God. Our lives are desiring to worship this God, to thank this God. Or are we here because we're just going through the religious motions? Well, it's Sunday. I guess I'll go to church today. It's Sunday, you know, someone so expects me to be there. Friend, are you here, but you're really not here? Because <laughs> that's easy, easy to do. We're reminded in this passage to ask ourselves the question, is our religion genuine and sincere? Absalom's didn't seem to be. He pretended to be a king. He posed as a judge. He presented himself as religious. But this was all in an effort to overthrow the king. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. Absalom plans to overthrow David. And so now we get to verses 10 through 12, and it becomes very clear what his intentions are. He conspires against the Lord's anointed. He wants to take what is not his. He wants the kingdom. And so he comes up with this plan. He sends secret spies and messengers out there so that when he comes into Hebron, they're, they're going to shout out to him as he's the king. You'll notice there's people with him in this entourage. They have no idea. 
idea this is taking place. But again, it's the appearance that Absalom's concerned about. And the appearance works, we see, because at the end of the passage, we read that the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. People were wooed and people were, were swayed. And one of those people here is noted, Ahithophel. And we talked about Ahithophel earlier when we talked about David's sin with Bathsheba because you may recall as it's noted in the scripture who Bathsheba's family was that there's reason to believe that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted counselors. And if that connection is true, if Ahithophel, the trusted counselor of David, was the grandfather of Bathsheba, then you can only imagine what's gone through his heart and mind as he's watched what his king has done to his granddaughter, to his granddaughter's husband, and how this has altered the future of his granddaughter's life. You can see here, it's not hard to imagine why Ahithophel's allegiance would then shift. Again, we, we see the ripple effects of David's sin. They just keep moving forward. And so now with Ahithophel by his side, we read that Absalom's conspiracy is growing strong, that the people flocking to him are increasing. And moving forward in our study, as we pick back up on it next year, we're going to see how this conspiracy plays out. But since we're pausing, I just want to note a few things about it. The first thing we should note is this. Absalom's plans will ultimately fail. His plans are going to fail, yet the Lord is going to and is using his conspiracy here to bring right judgment against David for his sin. David's going to continue to reign as king, but his reign will never be the same. It's a sad case moving forward. His kingdom suffers. His family is a mess. And yet, God is still at work to fulfill the covenant promise that he made to David that from his line would come a king who would sit on the throne and his kingdom would have no end. We're reminded when we look at the mess of David's family that a greater king would indeed come from David's line. And he will sit on the throne forever. And of course, Jesus is that greater king. Not a pretend one like Absalom. His judgments are righteous. His worship is devout and sincere. And his plan is to defeat sin and death. And he accomplishes his plan. And we see such a contrast here. Absalom wanted to steal the people's hearts and wanted to steal his father's throne. But Jesus... We read in John's Gospel, John 10, 10, Jesus says, The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And the way we have this life, friends, is through repentance and faith. It's through trusting in Christ. It's through our allegiance being to Christ as King. And if you've yet to trust in Him, if you've yet to repent and bow the knee to Jesus, then we invite you to do that today. And so if you would stand together as I pray for us, and as we come into this time of invitation, and as we respond to God's Word together. Father, as we consider the chaos that comes to the kingdom through David's sin, 
as we consider the, the wicked conspiracy of his son Absalom as he desires to take his father's throne. We thank you, Lord, that we have a much greater king. We thank you that out of this mess and chaos that you raise up one who sits on the throne forever. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that his judgments are right and are true. We thank you that his worship is genuine and sincere. We thank you that Christ is our king. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who who can't affirm that statement, who's yet to trust in Christ as their king. I pray, God, for those who may be here today just out of religious duty, concerned about the outward appearance, but whose hearts aren't truly yours. I pray that they would repent and confess Christ as Lord. And I pray for each of us that as we consider this passage, as we consider the wicked ways of Absalom, that we might consider our own heart that you would expose our sin to us and that we would repent of that sin and trust in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church family and guests, we're going to respond to God's word now by singing hymn number 317, Only Trust Him. And as we sing, I'll be available as I am each Lord's Day to counsel with you. If you have questions about the gospel, if you're coming this morning to confess Christ as your Lord, to follow through in obedience and and make steps towards baptism or, or joining this church family or if you just need somebody to pray with you i'd be honored to do that so we invite you to come as we sing together only trust him